Chapter 7 of The Heart of Hyacinth by Anoto Watana Twilight falls slowly and tenderly in Matsushima. The trees, which spread out their arms over the waters, seem but to deepen their shadows and gradually become part of the creeping silver shadow of night. For night is scarcely dark here in the summer. The noon rays are perpetual. The stars shine with an unusual luster. Earth reflects the light of the moon and the stars upon its shimmering waters, its deep blue fields, its blossom-decked trees. The pebbles on the shore become whiter, and the whiteness of the sands deepens the green of the pines. Night is but one long twilight, slumberous and peaceful, and fair Matsushima. When the numerous candles are lighted in the temples on the hills, slanting out their glimmer upon the bewildered waters, one might also wonder whether the stars have changed to their place and descended like spirits to render more fairy-like this princess of bays. An oddly assorted group of five people occupied a secluded spot on the shore. The influence of the night was upon them as they gazed out with seeing eyes that reflected the beauty of the scene and the emotions that tore at their hearts. A mother and two children, one whose boy-soul had only begun to open into a graver manhood, the other a child of seven. But seven years old was Hyacinth, yet in the child's little face shone the restless, passionate nature of one old enough to feel an infinity of suffering. She it was who helplessly sobbed as they stood there by the bay, sobbed with an effort at strangulation, and who gazed not only at the magic of the scene, but upward, into the face of Komazawa. One of the ministers broke the painful silence. An eager, odd, and somewhat nervous young man he appeared. Dear friend, he said, addressing the boy Kumar, it'll be much for the best. Our good friend here agrees with me in believing that it is your duty to follow the wishes of your father. Kumar did not reply, but little Hyacinth raised a face of turbulent scorn towards the speaker. She did not speak, but contented herself with clasping the hand of Coma the tighter, pressing her face close against it. "'Possibly it might be as well to put off for a year,' began the elder missionary, hesitatingly. Aoi interrupted. "'Nay, Excellency, the humble one agrees with the illustrious one. My lord's son has come to manhood. It is time now that he should leave us.' Her voice faltered. "'For a season,' she added softly. The Reverend Mr. Blount bowed gravely. I am glad, madam, he said, to find your views coincide with mine. Your son is, uh, first of all, more English than Japanese. Comer stirred uneasily. He opened his lips as though about to speak, then closed them, and turned his face towards the speaker. He is, in fact, one of us, continued the minister. He has the physical appearance, somewhat of the training, and let us hope with the natural instincts of the Caucasian. It would be not only ludicrous, but wicked for him to continue here in this isolated spot where he is, may we say, an alien, and particularly when it is his duty to follow the wishes of his father as regards his English estate. Certainly this is not where Komazawa belongs. I do not belong with you, Excellency, said Koma with a queer accent. This is indeed my home. Do not, I beg you, be deceived in that matter. It is true that I am also English. But, ah, I am not so base to deny my other blood. Is it not so good, Excellency? Could I despise this land of my birth, my honourable, dear home? Nay, son, 
interposed the agitated Aoi. His Excellency meant no reflection upon our Japan, but, oh, my son, you would not rebel against the will of your father. No, said Comer, clenching his hands at his side. I would not. Then you will go to this England like a good son. The time has come. Comer remained plunged in gloomy thought. After a moment, he lifted his head and looked at the elder missionary. How do we know the time has come? Because, my son, you have arrived at the years of manhood. I am but sixteen years, the young minister answered quickly. It will require four or five years at least in England to learn the language and ways of your people thoroughly. I already speak that language, Sukoma flushing darkly. Do I not, sir, Excellency? No, and yes. You have been brought up to speak the language. It is intelligible, but queer. Wrong, somehow. You speak your father's language like a foreigner. Very well, agreed Comer bitterly. Let us admit that. But may I inquire whether it will be necessary for me to go all the way to England to learn that language? Well, yes. Four years in an English school will do much for you. Four years? And when those four years are ended, I will still lack one year for my majority. That's right, said the missionary. In England one attains one's majority at twenty-one. So you would have a year in which to return, if you wish it, to Japan, previous to settling in England. I do not know if I shall ever do that, said the boy sadly. It was the wish of your father, said I, pathetically. Yes, it was his wish, repeated Comer. Yet I will come back each year. That is right, said the old minister, patting him on the shoulder. Your father never came back, said I, sighing wistfully. It would be entirely out of the question for you to return each year. Be advised by me, Komazawa. I have your interest at heart, said the young minister earnestly. Stay in England four years, then return and visit your mother and sister. Let the good excellency decide for us, said I, glancing appealingly at her old friend. He drew his brows together. Wait till the time comes to decide that, he concluded. If the boy is old enough to leave home, he is of an age also to choose what he shall do. Let us not attempt to curb him. Chapter 8 The new missionary assumed that Hyacinth was the sister of Komazawa. His interest in her was less than in Komazawa, since the boy was his father's heir. Possibly, too, this might have been because of the natural antagonism which the little girl had from the first met his overtures to her. From the moment when she became acutely aware that the new minister was practically responsible for the departure of her beloved Comer, the child conceived a violent dislike for him. When the old minister, worn with his years of labour, quietly resigned his pastorate into the hands of his successor, and the new minister had taken up the management of the little church, Hyacinth refused henceforth even to enter the mission house. All the entreaties and threats of Ioi were in vain, and with Comer gone, he soon realized the fruitlessness of attempting to force her to do anything against her will. Comprehending the turbulent nature of the child, she knew that Hyacinth would only disgrace them both if she were forced into the church, for the departure of Komazawa meant at least the Sunday freedom of Hyacinth. Nor was this the only result. The child, whose strange independent nature had never been controlled by anyone save by Comer, now that he was gone broke or restraint, she wandered at will about the bay, 
hiding in hollows in the rocks among the tombs when they sought to find her. Her little vagabond existence was not unlike that which Kuma himself had led in his early childhood, save that she was not so easily restrained by the reproaches of Aoi. Like him at this time, she scorned the companionship of other children. Like him, she wandered away from her home in fits and starts, passive for an interval, and then bursting all bounds and disappearing sometimes for the space of an entire day or night to return ragged and ravenously hungry. But when the winter came, and the snow on icicles crested the trees and whitened the hills, poor Hyacinth was like a little languishing caged bird. Her face grew wistful and mournful. She would remain for hours with her face pressed against the street shoji, staring out into the white cold world that bounded the horizon on all sides. If he had asked her what she was waiting for, she would have replied, I'm waiting for the summer. The summer brings coma. He has promised. Yet when the summer came, no coma returned with the flowers and the sun. Little Hyacinth grew accustomed to her solitude. The following year she came under the new edict of education, compulsory everywhere in Japan, and in spite of her protests was forced into school with a half-score of Japanese children of her own age. At first she regarded with a fierce detestation the school and all connected with it. Did not the sensei, teacher, on the very first day, perch his spectacles upon his nose and, drawing her by the sleeve to one side, examine her with a curiosity he would have bestowed upon some small animal? The children eyed her askance. One or two of the larger ones pointed at her hair and, laughing shrilly, called her a strange name. If familiarity breeds contempt, it also breeds toleration with the young. Hyacinth, in the beginning, had merely excited the curiosity, not the antipathy, of the Japanese teacher and his scholars. But as time passed, they became accustomed to the difference between her and themselves. Gradually, she slipped into being regarded and treated as one of them. Then Hyacinth's small, lonesome soul expanded to stretch out timid, though passionate, glad hands of comradeship to all the world. She became a favorite, the very life and soul of the school. Japanese children are painfully docile and passive. Never were such strange spirits infused into a Japanese class before. But the years passed, not unhappily for Hyacinth. Comer, at the end of the second year, was a mere memory. At the end of the third, he was forgotten, wholly forgotten. Such is the fickle mind of a child of the nature of Hyacinth. The fourth year brought him back to Matsushima. He had become very tall, taller than any of the inhabitants of Sunday. He seemed quite a head over them. He wore strange and unpleasant-looking clothes, such as those worn by the Reverend Mr. Blount, who was disliked as heartily as his predecessor had been beloved. Coma was now an object of the greatest curiosity to Hyacinth. At first his strange appearance in the house frightened her into speechlessness. Never had she seen, in all her minute experience, such a strange apparelled being, save, of course, the abominable Blount. In concert with the small children of the neighborhood, and in spite of the remonstrances of Aoi, Hyacinth would shout strange names whenever the gaunt figure of the white missionary appeared. Fawn Debel! Christian! Such were the names this little Caucasian bestowed upon the representative of her race. She had become the most utter little backslider, if she ever could have been considered a member of the church. 
respect and awe for the teachings of a careful and pious Shinto teacher, and association with a score of Shinto children, had had their due effect upon Hyacinth, and the influence of Aoi waned with the years. Little, if anything, of the ethics of the two religions did she understand, but to her the gods were bright, beauteous beings, whose temples were glittering gold, and whose priests kept them fragrant with incense and beaming lights by night. The mission house was empty, ugly, dark, and damp, though it seemed to her, and an odious man, with terrible long hairs falling from his chin, shouted and gesticulated to a congregation which often wept and groaned in unison. The small children shouted derisively, and often threw stones at the abominable blount when the little groups together, but when one of their number met the minister alone, he would run from him in a sheer agony of fright. So when Kamazawa returned to Sunday, clad in the garments worn by the missionary, Hyacinth regarded him with mingled feelings of terror and fascination. Though he made ceaseless efforts to speak to her, she could not be brought to utter one word in response. His every movement mystified her. She would sit on the floor through an entire meal, watching him with wide eyes, while he ate in a fashion she had never seen or heard before. Coma had discarded the chopsticks, and now used, to the extreme joy and agitation of Aoi, great silver knives and forks, which he brought forth from a mysterious recess, which even the inquisitive Hyacinth had never discovered before. Comer, distressed over the change in his little playmate, sought to win her friendship with presents purchased in England, boxes of strange sweetmeats, at least he told her they were sweetmeats, but they were coated with a black-brown covering which the little girl regarded suspiciously. She pushed almost fearfully from her the harmless chocolate drops. The sugar-coated biscuits tempted her to touch them with the tip of her tongue, but she retreated the next moment when she found the red colouring upon her fingers. Homer regarded the girl with an expression half whimsical, half tragical, and turning to his mother said, Why, the little one is even more Japanese than I. I nodded her head, smiling tenderly at the flushing face of Hyacinth. Will you not even speak to Kamazawa? she inquired reproachfully. Why, that is not kind. Do you not love your august brother? As Hyacinth made no response, Homer held out his hands to her. Come here, little one, he said, bending to her, till his face was quite close to hers. Her fascinated eyes wandered from his strange apparel to his face. His eyes held hers with their strong, tender, reassuring expression. Half unconsciously she went closer to him. Do you not remember me, then? he queried in a soft voice, whose reproachful tones thrilled the girl. Wistfully she approached him still closer, only to retreat in panic the next moment. She was like a little wild bird shy and fearful, yet half anxious to make friends with the strange being. Suddenly she began to cry, drawing her sleeve across her eyes and turning her face to the wall. She could not have told why she wept. Was it fear, childish conscience, or a slow recognition of her old, beloved Homer, whose name had become but a word to her? If she remembered Comer at all, the memory bore no resemblance to this tall man-boy who had returned so suddenly to their home. To her he seemed a stranger, a fearful intruder. Hurt to the quick, Madame Aoi whispered to her son. He arose without a word and disappeared into his room. Fifteen minutes later, Hyacinth, 
playing with a regiment of Japanese dull soldiers on the floor, having forgotten all her tears of a few minutes since, leaped to her feet suddenly with a strange little cry. There in the middle of the room she stood, holding tightly in her hand her doll, and staring as if fascinated by the smiling figure on the threshold. It was the same stranger, surely, yet are not the same. A few minutes had wrought such a change in his appearance. He had discarded the heavy, dark, mysterious clothes. He appeared like any other Japanese youth, save that he was much taller, and his face smiled down upon the little girl, with an expression whose power she had been unable to resist, even when he had worn those outlandish garments. Called to her softly. Now come, little one, come, give me that welcome home. Her hand unclenched, the doll dropped to the floor. With a sudden impulse, she ran blindly towards him, and he caught her in his arms with a great hug which was as familiar to her as life itself. 